0: It was so nice. This morning was the first Sunday morning I've been able to sit outside and review my sermon, and as I was doing that, a Robin came in, stayed with me until I got to the challenging parts and then left, and uh, it was just a beautiful, beautiful morning. I trust that you'll hang in there a little longer uh, this morning than, than uh, he did, but uh, it's great to have you here. I uh, grew up in a house that was limited in material things, in financial resources, but seemed limitless uh, in terms of hospitality. I mean, literally, people were coming and going constantly in our house. I remember when Jen came to visit before we were married, and she couldn't believe how many people just walked in the door all the time. She'd come out with a towel in her hair, and there'd be strangers uh, maybe, waiting to meet her. There's, there's there were people literally coming and going constantly, and of course, the visits often revolved around, around food. Our pastor, being a wise man, would strategically visit just before lunch, and, uh, and a lot of pastors are gifted that way. He would strategically visit just before lunch and, and would often leave, because my mom made homemade bread every day, he would leave with a fresh loaf of homemade bread as he went off on his way. I remember during times of political campaigns when, when, when those who were uh, running for, uh, to be elected would do a lot of door-to-door work, uh, they, if the candidate that my parents intended to vote for showed up at our door, they were invited in, there was a visit, and they left with homemade baked goods. I mean, that was just the kind of place it was. But there was one exception to the great hospitality in our house, and it happened on a November 1st morning when uh, two aggressive Jehovah's Witnesses tried to pressure their way into our house. Now you say, how do you know it was November the 1st? Well, I know because the night before was Halloween and the metal bowl that the treats were in were still inside the front door. And that bowl became my mother's weapon of choice to uh, make sure that no one came in, that she didn't want to come in. So that's the only exception I can remember from childhood where hospitality wasn't extended to, to a great degree. I think it's fair to say that while hospitality is found in a lot of cultures, the culture that I come from is known for its hospitality, and I believe the greatest example in modern day of that was during 9-11, and I've talked a lot about that, and I don't want to say a lot about it this morning, but I do want to share a very brief video with you uh, this morning that uh, uh, of people that were involved in that event, because I believe some of the things they are saying are, are critically tied to launching what we want to talk about um, this morning.
1: I was only on for about an hour or so when I got a call from the town manager saying... We're expecting some planes to land in Gander. Looks like that the airspace is gonna be shut down because there's a terrorist attack on the United States.
0: Then all of a sudden, we're looking to our airport and here comes 7,000 people. We were able then to be able to go up to these people, put our arms around them and say, it's okay, we have you, don't worry.
1: No questions was asked. People just came out, gave off their time, their food, their alms, and everything. Well, once we knew all the flights were on the way to Gander, uh, I think the whole town kind of came together, even just going to the grocery store and getting prepared for when they all landed to welcome them to our homes.
0: The people of Gander, they'd been cooking all day, and they had taken the time to set up televisions because they knew that's what we wanted to see, were the images of what was going on. And they set up telephones, and there were people They
1: made calls over 30 different countries, and they'd said, don't worry about paying us any money, just make the call. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what sexual orientation you are. It's people, and you need help. You help them.
0: We almost became like one big family. Instead of having 9,000, we had 16,000 in the family.
1: When the last plane left Gander and we were at the airport talking to the passengers, when we saw the tears of joy and the smiles on their faces, we were paid in full. So that's hospitality.
0: As you read the Gospel of John, you'll see if you look closely that hospitality is a dominant metaphor. In John chapter 2, Jesus demonstrates a greater hospitality than the bridegroom at a wedding by providing wine when it ran out and not only providing wine but better wine than the wine that had run out. In John chapter 4, Jesus came to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he offered her living water to drink. In John chapter 13, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. In John chapter 14, the disciples are told by Jesus that Jesus was preparing room for them, space for them, so that they could come and abide and live in the Father's house. In John chapter 15, Jesus welcomed friends he said, who should be treated as servants. And in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, Jesus encounters his disciples and made breakfast on the beach for his disciples as he spent time with them. All through the book of John, we see the metaphor, the theme of hospitality. Now, all of these examples that I've just mentioned reflect first century hospitality. It's interesting when you read the New Testament that the most common complaint about Jesus, the most common complaints about his disciples from the religious leaders centered around hospitality, who he's with, who he's eating with, what he's eating, his eating habits, his drinking habits, being char. Being accused of being a glutton and a, you know, basically an alcoholic because so much of his ministry focused around hospitality and they had a problem with that. Jesus welcomed anyone, anywhere, at any time, especially sinners and outcasts to come and eat with him. Hospitality is an act of. Of grace and generosity demonstrated by the host. And I believe that Jesus' approach to eating was a formal strategy. Jesus' whole life, his whole ministry reflected and revolved around hospitality. And so this morning, after a two-week break, we're back in our series entitled Critical Questions. And we're in this series, we're considering some of the questions that Jesus asked in John's gospel, and specifically how these questions relate to us, to you and I. So far, we've focused on what do you want, where are they, and do you want to get well? Today's question is, where should we buy bread? Where should we buy bread? Jesus asked this question to his disciple, Philip, concerning the 5,000 men plus women and children that had followed Jesus and gathered on the hillside. What I hope we'll see today is that this story is not just about a miracle of feeding multitudes. That we'll see that Jesus is the ultimate host who extends grace and generosity by welcoming everyone who seeks after him regardless of their status or perceived value. So we're going to look at John chapter 6, 1 to 15 for a few moments this morning. The scripture was already read. Thank you, Phil. If you're here and you have your Bible or a Bible app or uh, with you, if you can open it, you can follow along. I encourage you to do that this morning. We're going to start with the context, just reviewing the story that's before us. The account of the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children is, is one of only two miracles that is recorded in all four Gospels in the New Testament. This miracle, and the second one is the resurrection of Jesus. Clearly, this was seen by all Gospel writers as a really significant event to record. The location is on the hillside, on the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's spring. We know that because Passover, it says, is near, and we also know it because the grass is green. A large crowd is gathered. They followed Jesus there because they'd witnessed the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. They're drawn by curiosity. They're drawn by interest. They're drawn by his teaching. They're drawn with the hope of a potential miracle for their own lives. They're drawn for their own personal desires, what they can receive from him as they spend time with him. Now, most likely, many of these people are not locals, but they're en route to Jerusalem for Passover. They're in this area, and so you have this large pilgrimage group that are making their way that have now gathered around Jesus. Jesus looked at the large crowd, and so he, he called Philip over, and he said, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all of these people to eat? Now, the Scripture tells us that it's Jesus that initiated the hospitality, No one's coming up to him and saying, I'm starving. It's not like at home, my kids, two hours before dinner. What time is dinner? I'm starving. No one's doing that. Or nine o'clock in the morning. What are we having for dinner tonight? Hate that question. I don't want to tell you. And so I won't tell him. And Jen thinks I'm petty. But that's okay. No one's saying, I'm starving. I'm hungry. I need food. No one asks for food. It's Jesus' initiative. And we're told that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He's asking the question to test Philip. And he's testing Philip because it's important to Jesus to include his disciples in this significant teaching and ministry moment. He wants them to see that these people, even though they weren't invited, they're uninvited guests, they weren't invited and even though they came of their own initiative for their own desires, they're still the disciples in Jesus' responsibility. And as such, he wants them to be a part of the solution. And so the response to Jesus' question, and I love this, is interesting and revealing. Philip responds negatively. And he outlines why it can't be done. I believe that Philip is a rare specimen that is a theologian and a mathematician. That's a rare combination. Usually you go into the ministry because you can't do math, right? He's a mathematician. And so he quickly did the math in his head and he concluded that to feed this crowd, it's going to require, you know, half a year's salary. Well, clearly they didn't have that much money. And they didn't have time to earn it. And the people, well, they're hungry now. So statistically, Jesus, this is not possible. Now, Andrew's response was different than Philip's. He says, well, yeah, well, let me tell you, I was able to locate this this poor little boy here, and he has a lunch of five barley loaves and, and two fish. Barley loaves, barley being the cheapest of all grain that's available and often eaten by the poor, two fish, small, likely two small pickled sardine-type fish, Mediterranean diet. Well, he too is doubtful, but he brings the little boy, but then follows it up says, well, he's got five loaves and two fishes, but how far will they go to feed so many? But you know what? I'm just telling you it's out there just the same. Well, without hesitation, Jesus asked them to seat the crowd on the grass. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and they began to distribute to those who were seated. And he did the same with the fish. I want us to notice that, you know, Jesus is not praying over this lunch and then all of a sudden there's just smoke and fireworks and there's this big pile of food in the middle of the field. And it's a buffet and people can come eating off it. That's not how this miracle went down. When Jesus finished praying, there's still five loaves and two fish. At the end of the prayer, it's the same amount of contents than before he started to pray. But he began to break it and distribute it. And as he started breaking it, it kept multiplying and multiplying. It says until everyone had eaten to the point that they were full. They couldn't eat anymore. They were full. They had enough. And then Jesus said to the disciples, well, you know, we don't want any wastage. So I want you to gather up the leftovers. And it says they twel- filled 12 baskets. The baskets are likely large fishing baskets that the fish would be, would be placed in as they were caught. And so we're told that there's 12 disciples. We're told there are 12 baskets. And each of them is is holding the evidence of a miracle in their hands, even Philip, even Philip, that said mathematically, this is impossible. The mathematician is holding a basket at the end. When the crowd saw the 12 baskets, they got excited. Wow! Not only were we fed, but look at the sign. Not only did he feed all of us on that little lunch, but look how much is left over, and they make the statement, surely this is the prophet. Now, we, we talked about this in the, in the first sermon of the series, when, when the religious people came from Jerusalem to John and said, are you the prophet? And John said, no, I'm not the prophet, but he's here, you just haven't met him yet. They're referring to Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses prophesied that a day would come that a prophet like him would come to Israel and that Israel should listen to him. It's a messianic promise. And so they're sitting there after having to gorge themselves on this little boy's lunch. They see this miraculous sign and they're saying, all right, Deuteronomy 18. It was just fulfilled in our presence. And so what do they want to do? Let's make him king. Let's make him king. At this time, it was very popular to have messianic movements, especially amongst the peasants, the poor, who were promised the king that would liberate them from their oppressors. Get them away from Herod. Get them away from the Romans. They had no comprehension of Jesus spiritual mission his spiritual purpose that his kingdom was not about confronting the existing political powers it had nothing to do with the existing political powers it wasn't about promising provision for all who would join his cause they totally misunderstood and Jesus knew that they were misunderstanding and he knew this is not the way that he was going to be inaugurated into kingship there was a better way and it was later and it was going to happen but this was not it and so it says, knowing their intention, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. So there's our story. I want to talk to you about hospitality. Now the truth is, the goal, or the goal should be, if it isn't, it should be. The goal of reading scripture is to understand the intended meaning of a text, not what we think the intended meaning is or what we like to see in there, but what was the intended meaning in that scripture, and then to take that and apply it to our lives. That's why we read scripture, isn't it? We want to know what God is saying, and we want to apply that to our lives so that we can honor God in what he's saying. Now, the truth is, sometimes when we read scripture, we focus on certain parts of the scripture or certain parts of the story And we miss the big picture of what God intended to communicate to us in the story. We're so focused in on some details that we miss the bigger story. That can happen easily in this story that we're considering today. We can see this as nothing more than a celebration of a miracle of Jesus miraculously taking five loaves and two fish and feeding over 10,000 people. And that in itself would be a great story, and it's a great miracle. And while the story is about that, the bigger picture of what needs to be seen here is Jesus' grace and generosity in inviting all those who are willing into hospitality with him. That's the point of this story. That's the point of this scripture. This story is a reminder of the far-reaching arms of Jesus to embrace any and all who come after him into fellowship with him. That's what this scripture is about. Eating in the first century was a complex social event, even amongst the poor. And I believe to really grasp the significance of what Jesus did here in this story, it's important to understand the complexities of first century Jewish eating practices and how Jesus destroyed them all to ensure everyone was invited to the table. I'm going to do these very quickly, but there are five areas that of focus, that first century hospitality that need to be considered. First is the attendees. Sharing a meal in the first century confirmed one's basic family unit. It was rare, especially for the poor, to share a table with anybody outside their family unit. And that was the case for a couple of reasons. Number one, you couldn't afford to. If you had enough food to feed your own, you were, you were well off. But to think about feeding others, you just, you just didn't have the resources to do it. And secondly, because you only ate with people who were on your social level. And so your family was on your social level, and they were your family, and so you shared what little you had with your family, and you stayed on that level. Rich people only ate with the rich. Now, often the intention of rich people dining with the rich was to boosts one's honor, because this is an honor-based culture too. And if you had people of high honor over to your house, then you looked really good, and then you got more honor. Like ate with like. You only ate with those that you shared values with, period. Those holding different values would never be invited to your table unless you were trying to discredit them, to gain more honor for yourself. And we see that multiple times as the Pharisees invite Jesus into their home, but they mistreat him in hopes to discredit him and get more credit for themselves. That's the only time you would do that. Those who were considered unclean like Gentiles or the sick and so on, well, they were excluded from the hospitality of the table. They would never be invited to your table. They were unclean. Jesus' demonstration of hospitality on the hillside pushed all of these practices aside. Many of those who were in attendance were there because what? They were sick. They wanted a healing. They were sick and they needed Jesus. There were varying degrees of commitment in that crowd. Not everybody in that 10,000 plus group were sold out to the things of God. Varying levels of commitment. Yet out of grace and generosity... Jesus brought all of them together into this unlikely motley family meal. It didn't matter. He's bringing them all together. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter what you believed. It didn't matter what society said about you. You're invited to eat this meal. I'm sharing it and you can have it. Secondly, the food. Jews had strict laws concerning which foods could be eaten. But not only which foods could be eaten, but how these foods were even prepared. First of all, food could only be eaten if the proper tithe was paid on it. That's a good practice. Nobody eats till the tithe is paid. I'm not hearing very many amens. I might let chew on that for a while. See what I did there? Secondly, food had to be prepared in a certain way. Even the dishes the vessels used in serving and preparation had to meet a certain standard if the food was going to be acceptable for consumption and meet all of the laws. And so here we see Jesus, he fed over 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish. No one has ever asked, okay, before you distribute that, Jesus, are those five loaves and two fish, were they tithed on? Nobody asked that question. No one asked Was that little lunch prepared in a kosher kitchen, in a kosher manner, using a kosher spatula and the proper containers? Nobody asked the question. Imagine you're on the hillside. It's camping in a chaotic environment. There's no control whatsoever of of food handling laws and cleanliness at all on this mountainside. It's complete chaos in those terms. There's no way to address those laws. But Jesus took those few items and he gave thanks to God for them and he distributed them to eat, going against all of the social and spiritual practices of meal preparation. Thirdly, location. Meals were most often eaten in homes and banquet halls because accessibility to water in order to go through purification rituals and washing prior to eating was imperative. In this culture. Well water would not have been accessible on the hillside. For all these people to go through the proper cleansing processes before partaking of the meal. The hillside was an unsuitable location for Jesus to be sharing hospitality with these people. There's no way they could meet all the terms of hospitality up on that hillside. But despite the lack of water for purification rituals. Jesus shares the meal with them. Status. And I love this one. When people from varying social, economical backgrounds came together in the same place, as rare as that was, it did happen on occasions, status would determine the seating arrangements. If you had high status, then you sat in the priority seating. It's like being on the airplane. You're in first class. And the others sat based on further and further away in the more in the least likely of seats, in the least valued of seats. The places of honor were reserved for the rich and the powerful. Even the food varied. I don't know, you ever go to a wedding and you can't remember six months ago whether you chose the salmon or the steak? But it was a point in your life where you're trying to eat healthy, so you pick the salmon, but now the wedding is here and you're not eating healthy anymore and you can't believe you just missed out on steak? Sorry, I'm just sharing my testimony. <laughs> Different meals in the same banquet. If you were rich and powerful, you got, you got, you know, the filet mignon with the lobster tail. I mean, well, not them because Jews didn't eat lobster, but you know what I'm saying. They're, 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 they're eating the prime meals and, you know, the poor are eating rice and beans over in the corner. Same meal, same banquet, or sorry, same, same banquet, same event, but different treatment. Well, what did Jesus do? You didn't take the time and the effort to divide the group based on socioeconomic standing. Excuse me, could I see your, uh, your income tax return from 2018? Yes, okay, you make this much in this bracket. Your section is over here. No, he says, just get them all to sit down. Put them all on the grass. All of them, just put them on the grass. And not all, all of them were not only all sitting together, they're all given the same food. They all received as much as they could eat. One didn't get more than the other. They're all sitting back there thinking, oh, I'm so full. They all got as much as they wanted. And people of varying statuses were seated next to each other on the hillside. Jesus invited all of them, regardless of their status, into hospitality. All of them were equal. All of them were valuable. All of them were important. No discrimination. And fifthly, reciprocity. Now, there's a mouthful. In biblical times, when a person ate in another person's home, there was an expectation that the invitation would be reciprocated with the same quality of meal that had been served to them. I suppose we still do that sometimes as well. Well, we're coming over. We're going to have to do a nice meal because, like, you know, she worked all day on that special sauce, right? For this... There's that expectation, you've got to give back to me what I gave to you. So for this reason, on the odd occasion that a poor person might for whatever reason be invited to eat in a rich person's home, they would decline because they knew that the obligation would be that they would have to reciprocate that meal and that the financial expectation of doing that was more than they could bear, that they could meet, so they would just decline the invitation because there's no way they could reciprocate it. I think the difference between Jesus in this regard and the cultural norms, he identifies in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, where he's at the dinner of a prominent Pharisee who's hosting Jesus at a meal, and this is what Jesus said to the host. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is shifting here the cultural norm and expectation. Jesus fed 10,000 people with no exception, that these pe- no expectation that these people could ever repay him for what they received. There was nothing they could give. Jesus' hospitality is extended towards those who could never pay for themselves, but receive it out of his grace and out of his generosity anyway. Because that's Jesus. Now this is the part where the robin flew away. Two things I want to leave with us this morning. And I got to tell you, as I was writing this, I felt personally so convicted on the two of these. So if by chance you actually feel a tinge of conviction, you know you're not in there alone. I was in there long before it got to you. Two challenges. First, build a longer table. Someone has said, when you have more than you need, build a longer table, not a higher fence. Now, we could just sit and think on that for a while. But I'd like to change that quote for this sermon this morning, and say this. When you have experienced the grace and generosity of the hospitality of Jesus in your life, build a longer table, not a higher fence. Truth be told, the tendency in North American Christianity for many years was to build fences. To keep people out. You want to keep ideologies out. We got to keep practices out. We got to keep people from negatively influencing us. We got to keep them from contaminating the purity of of the faith. And so we had to build fences. You're in. Teletubbies are out. Here's the fence. Some of you lived in the 80s. You might appreciate what I'm saying there. We need to be reminded today that Jesus was not a fence builder. Jesus was a table extender. And as his followers this morning who have been empowered to carry on his ministry and his mission, we're not fence builders either. We were never called to be fence builders. We were called to be table extenders. And I don't know who to give credit to, but I once read that said, if you build a fence around your faith, Jesus will occupy the space on the other side of your fence. Ooh, ouch. At some time, for some time at EPC, we've been elevating the necessity of rediscovering Jesus' intention of discipleship focusing on being, first of all, a true disciple of Jesus, and secondly, but not separated from that, making disciples of Jesus. Genuine biblical discipleship cannot happen outside of grace-driven and generous hospitality. It can't happen. It can't happen literally, and it can't happen figuratively. Literally. We need to open our lives and our homes to embrace people from many backgrounds, from many lifestyles and mindsets. We have to open our lives and allow people in that are not like us. Now, Christians have a reputation of being hospitable. We do. I mean, we have a lot of social gatherings. We eat a lot of food. We are experts at casserole, potluck. It's a subsection under Christianity in the dictionary. We've spent a lot of time being together with other Christian friends, socializing and eating at Swiss Chalet, leaving a track as the tip for the waitress. That's another whole sermon. But we have struggled with extending our reach to people outside of like faith. That's been a struggle for us. And you might be surprised at what you may discover if you're willing to extend your table. I just want to share two examples with you. A little over a year ago, a member of our congregation who is a senior came to see me. She lives in a condo building with other seniors. And in the process of relationship with the other seniors, she met some people who had questions about faith. They knew about her faith in her life, and said, is it possible we could have a conversation? We have questions. And she said, well, why don't you come to my condo, and we'll have a cup of tea, and we'll talk about these things. So two or three of them showed up. They're sharing a cup of tea, and they're talking about faith, and these people say, this is wonderful. Can we do this again? Well, sure. Can we bring some other people? Well, over the process of time, she showed up in my office and said, Pastor, I need to apologize. I've inadvertently started a small group without your a permission. I thought that was funny. How dare you live kingdom without my permission? Is it okay? Of course it's okay. That's what I hope everybody who visits my office wants to talk about. Incidentally, it isn't. But... I said, now, in the meantime, if you want to come under the umbrella of our small group so we can provide you with resources and support, we'd love to have you. And that's what ended up happening. Extending your table. Offering opportunity for hospitality to allow opportunity for kingdom life and work to happen. A second example is from my own life. About three years ago, my wife, who actually likes people, we're a good combination. She likes people. Me not so much, so she said, I have an idea. I want to invite the neighbors for coffee and dessert at Christmas. What do you think? I said, sure. But they're not coming. Philip and I would have been good buddies. Right? They're not coming, but hun, you know. Do it. Sure. And so she got up early in the morning before anyone was moving and put invitations on the doors with the whatever, and I'm just thinking. I'm, trying, I'm making a plan of how to console her when it doesn't work. Only one person didn't reply at all. One person said, I'm not available for that date, but I'd like to have you at our house, which incidentally, that did happen a couple weeks later. And all the rest came. And they're all sitting in my living room. They're all from different countries. They're from different religious backgrounds. We're, we're working around dietary things for this religion versus that one, and we're having a great time in our house. Of, it took the neighborhood friendships to, to a higher level, and people discovered, I have a child the same age as you, probably in the same school, and I don't even know you. See, if you'd left that to me, that would never have happened. You don't know what's going to happen when you extend your table. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus, we will need to literally engage in hospitality by extending the reach of our inclusion to show grace and generosity to the unlikeliest of guests. But then figuratively, we need to open our arms for a broader embrace of people in general. We can't gloss over words of scripture. We read these scriptures that challenge us to a broader reach and a broader inclusion. We read John 3.16 where it talks about the world. Jesus came to save the world. And we hear, read words like all who believe in him and any who will come after him and whosoever will. Those are pretty inclusive words. You can't read the Bible without stumbling over them every, every few minutes. It's all inclusive language. On Pentecost Sunday, I showed you a pic from Azusa Street. And in that picture of those early days at the turn of the century, there were young and old, there were female and male, there were black and there were white, and they were a family as God was launching this new Pentecostal movement at the turn of the century. From the very beginning, as Pentecostals, we were led by a black person when blacks weren't allowed in the same classroom as white people. They couldn't drink at the same water fountains or go to the same bathrooms, but that was our leader. Women hadn't even earned the right to vote yet in the U.S. And they were planting churches and taking leadership until they organized and the men felt they could do it better. That was not a good idea. The point is this. From the very beginning as Pentecostals, we included those that were excluded from the mainstream. So that gives me hope. Because if anybody has the ability to build a longer table, well, it could be Pentecostals. It could be us. Because historically, that's who we've been. Secondly, exercise a greater faith. In this story, we see two Conflicting approaches to faith and mission. Philip does the math, presents the statistics of why Jesus' desire to extend hospitality is not practical. Andrew searches the crowd and finds a young lad with a small lunch. He's not sure how it's going to meet such a great need, but presents it to Jesus nonetheless. We see two approaches to faith here. We see calculated practicality, and we see childlike generosity. That's what we see here. And I want you to know that I appreciate calculated practicality because there's a fine line between faith and stupidity. Like, really, there is. If I had to tell you, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard someone say, How big is God? I could be retired now. There's a fine line. So it's important to count the cost, to consider the implications. I also want you to know that I tend, and this is my confession, I tend to gravitate more towards calculated practicality than I do childhood generosity. That's my confession. I admit it. I need to be stretched more towards childlike faith and generosity. I just do. The truth is, the kingdom of God is not a business. The church is not a business. And often God challenges us to take steps of faith that go against all business practices. If anyone was writing a book on the church, it should be How to Run a Business Poorly and Still Succeed. We miss out when we are so practically minded that we're no faithfully good. Truth is, if, people, if the people that planted and built this church that we call home today were only practical calculating people, I will assure you that EPC would not be here this morning. You'd be somewhere else. You wouldn't be here. It was because a group of people with childlike faith and generosity gave the little that they had and God blessed their actions and provided everything they needed. That's our legacy. That's our DNA. And that's our future. I believe that churches who exercise calculated practicality at the cost of childlike faith and generosity are doomed to decline in failure, even though it may make all the business sense in the world. I want you to know I'm not preaching this because I'm leading up to something. I'm not leading anywhere. Just preaching truth. Every once in a while, we need to take a step of faith that doesn't make sense other than the fact that Jesus is asking us to do it. I'm not talking about, oh, well, I'm going to do this for you, Jesus. Yeah, I didn't ask you to do that. It's talking about being obedient to what he's asking. Every once in a while, we need to take a step of faith that doesn't make sense. I believe nothing rejuvenates a church more than when a group of people. Believe in their hearts that Jesus is asking them to do something and it doesn't make sense, but they're willing to do it anyway. Nothing breathes life into a church more than that. If we are willing to give what we have, take steps of faith, and let Jesus distribute it, we might just be amazed with how exciting living kingdom life can be. You bored in your Christianity? You might be amazed how a childlike step of faith that doesn't make sense awakens your soul. I'm going to invite our worship team back. Jesus is asking us the question this morning, where can we buy bread? Not because he doesn't know. (laughs) He knows the answer, but because he wants us to come into the process of extending his table and including all who are willing to eat at the table. That's why he's asking us. And for this to happen, childlike faith and generosity must be demonstrated. Jesus is the ultimate host who extends grace and generosity by welcoming everyone who seeks after him regardless of their status or their perceived value. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. You're here this morning and there's a need in your life. And you would like someone to pray with you this morning. You came today, you're burdened and heavy and you... You just long for and would love more than anything for someone to pray with you, to encourage you, to ask. Because sometimes we just get to the point where we just can't pray anymore ourselves. We just need someone else to pray for us. We want to pray with you this morning. And while we're doing that in this environment today, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will speak to each and every one of us about how we can extend our table literally and figuratively and how we can be people in our own lives that are less calculated practicality and a little bit more childlike and generous in our faith I'm going to invite our prayer team to come Tyler would you lead us If you'd like us to pray with you this morning, please make your way. That your love indeed defends us. And your love in us allows us the opportunity to defend others. Father, I thank you this morning that for those of us in this room that would count ourselves as followers of Jesus, that there was that time in our lives where we We're invited to your table. We didn't deserve to be at your table. We hadn't earned our right to be there. There was shame in our lives. There was sin in our lives. There was disappointment, discouragement, brokenness. But you invited us to your table just as we were. Because there was nothing we could do to earn the right to be there anyway. So we came just as we were. And Father, as we find ourselves here this morning, we are grateful for that invitation. And our lives are committed to extending that invitation to your table, to others who are sinful and broken. Whose lives are filled with shame, who are searching and empty and longing and confused and arrogant. But Lord, we want to extend the invitation of them into our lives as freely as you extended the invitation of us into yours. And I pray that through our commitment to model you not a church not a denomination not a theological doctrinal stand simply model you we will be able to love embrace minister to help rescue restore encourage see healing and salvation come in the lives of every person we have the privilege of encountering. And so, Father, as we leave this place this morning, I pray that your spirit will well up in all of us, well up in all of us a desire to be that person that can be used of you to help build your kingdom. Father, would you give us strength? Would you give us your Holy Spirit? Would you help us? Father, would you help us today as we struggle with stepping out? Struggling with needing to see the answer before we're able to respond, but but rather to respond in faith in order to see the answer. Would you help us with that? Would you help us to be able to jump even if we can't see where our feet are going to land? because we trust it's you that's all we want is to be led by you so father as we leave this place today we pray for our families many of us in our families have people that we long more than anything to come to know you as lord and savior would you reach them today wherever they are whether it be through us or another would you would you help reach them today and Help them receive the invitation to your table. Would you help us to be people who extend the invitation to other people's families, others along the way who have no families? Be a part of your family. So Lord, we leave today. We leave today with a desire to be like you. To be like you. We don't want to just sing it. I want to just say it. We want to live it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.